This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Learn more and start your 14-day free trial with this amazing service by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, Fora.tv, La Show, Rachel Maddow, Counterspin, and The Young Turks. country over what to do with the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Now, some have said we have to close the prison, that there must be some judicial process that deals with these detainees, no matter how horrible the crimes they're accused of. Whereas others have said, <laughs> both arguments have merit. And both arguments are about to be put to the test. A Guantanamo Bay detainee arrives right here in New York City today. He's going to be arraigned on more than 200 counts of murder for his role in the deadly bombings of our embassies, U.S. embassies in Africa. <gasps> Super criminal. His name is Ahmed Galani, and he's admitted that before the 1998 attacks on U.S. embassies in Africa, he provided al-Qaeda with oxygen tanks and dynamite, but claims he had no idea they would be used to make bombs. What? They, they told me they were trying to catch a roadrunner. Uh, the, the oxygen was for the rocket skates. The dynamite was to blow up the cliff that was overhanging the roadrunner where he was eating the seeds. What could go wrong? Of course, not everyone was happy to see Galani leave Guantanamo. How is holding them in a prison in Guantanamo that meets all the standards here or holding them in a prison in your, your neighborhood, your hometown, New York or Chicago or Cleveland, what's the difference? If they're in jail, they're in jail. And what the real difference is, we have a place where we can secure them even if the military commission that tries them doesn't find them guilty. Yes! A jail where you can imprison people who found not guilty. Brilliant. Why hasn't anyone thought of that before? We could call it a dungeon. <laughs> Others aren't sure we'd even know how to handle such a strange and mysterious trial. We have no judicial precedence for, for the conviction of someone like this. It's true, there's no real precedent for this kind of conviction, except for, uh, I guess Ramsey Yosef would be one. You'd have uh, Musawi would be another. I guess, I guess really every name that's coming up next to me right now. <laughs> All people that have been tried and convicted in the United States.
Let's go to the Newsweek story, Sam. You know, we were talking about this breaking story about Dick Cheney uh, ordering the CIA to essentially cover up some program that we don't know what it is. And, you know, one can only imagine what it is that the CIA could be doing that they don't feel that they can tell the gang of four or the uh, the high-ranking officials on the intelligence committees, because God knows that they had basically licensed to do just about everything after September 11th that was on foreign soil. And also on the heels of this new IG report, this being Inspector General uh, interviewing uh, more than 200 government officials on the whole terrorist surveillance program, which shows that that was rife with lawbreaking. We have this story that comes out in Newsweek. And, you know, this is one of those classic stories, Bobby, where I think you can start to see a political narrative being built. It's basically about Eric Holder, who is our uh, attorney general, and it starts... The first sentence is the giveaway. It's the morning after Independence Day, and Eric Holder is feeling the weight of history. They're starting to set a narrative, because this story goes on to say that four knowledgeable sources, and you know this, Bobby, if four sources are telling you something for a story of this length, there is a concerted effort to get a message out that he may be on the verge of asserting his independence Literally, it's two paragraphs later, they use that word again. In a profound way, they're saying that four sources indicate that he's leaning towards appointing a prosecutor to investigate the Bush administration's uh, interrogation practices, i.e. torture. They are setting up, I think, a media narrative because Barack Obama, as you said earlier, has, has tried so strenuously to say we need to turn the page, even though we haven't read the page. We need to move forward. He doesn't want to bog down his domestic agenda. Well, they are setting up Holder now to look as if he has gone rogue and has decided <laughs> he has no choice but to investigate these people. And I'll tell you something. I do not know how. And we've been saying this for years. It's like a house of cards. I don't know how you go after the mechanisms that allowed for this country to become a torture nation where you do not come across some of these other secret programs, whether it's the terrorist surveillance program, essentially spying on Americans without a warrant or these unknown programs. There are going to be crossover, and there are going to be somebody who says, I don't want to go to jail for this torture program. Hey, you might be interested in this. And this could be the investigation that begins to unravel all of it. Well, my worry is that Eric Holder this week announced that he was reviewing candidates for a special prosecutor, but that he is clamping down on that special prosecutor from the outset by establishing a very, very narrow limitation for those investigations. And people are saying, and the administration has kind of bought into this, that if we release too much of this information, it's going to damage America's image throughout the world. And in fact, the opposite is true. The Arab world and the people in Europe already know that we've been engaging in this stuff. The only way for us to reclaim our prestige, to reclaim our integrity, to reclaim our moral authority is by coming clean. We, everybody knows that. That's the stuff we teach our children. If you do something wrong, the only way that you get a restart on that is by coming clean. And the same holds true with nations. We need to come clean. We need to name the names. We need to prosecute, maybe prosecute the people who committed crimes. And that's the way to reestablish America's moral integrity throughout the world. And, and you know, I, I defy anybody to tell me 
another way that we're going to do it. If we don't come clean on this stuff, it's just going to hound us forever. And not only hound us in terms of our uh, the way we're perceived around the world, but I think that you can look upon what took place over the, the eight years of the Bush administration, and you can trace that directly back to the lack of accountability, whether it was the Iran-Contra affair or the notion that, uh, you know, uh, the players in Watergate were, were pardoned. I mean, this is simply, you know, the lesson that Dick Cheney learned when he was uh, um, uh, when he was in the Nixon administration was just you don't make tapes. And uh, in that case, you can get away with this stuff. And so it's as much for, you know, I think our perception around the world, but as much for our future generations so that it curbs the ability of an administration to do something like this, to lie a country into war, to spy on their own uh, uh, their own countrymen, to um, uh, to engage in in clearly illegal actions, you know. Uh, if you can justify spying on your own uh, country, if you can justify holding prisoners with uh, no charges, uh, you know, there's a whole raft of things that may not be as violent and extreme that you can also justify doing. Right. And I, you're absolutely right that this goes back to Iran-Contra. We made the mistake there by not prosecuting, by not appointing a special prosecutor. The Democrats folded when they, you know, Reagan had clearly lied to the American public. He had clearly violated the law. President Bush, Vice President Bush at that time, had clearly violated the law. And the Democratic leadership in the House and the Senate went to the White House and made a deal with them and said, if you fire your upper staffers, bring in Howard Baker, who we all you know, like because he's a former senator, then we'll let this just drop. And that gave them a blueprint for violating the law in the future. They said, as long as we, you know, we can violate the law and get away with it, nobody's going to be prosecuted. And that is, you know, we're now paying the price of that. We should not make the same mistake again. Far away, hold on now, your excess here is waiting just for you. Don't pause too long, it's fading. Sending all too soon, you'll see. story in particular that, that has really hung with me, and that was in October of 2006, the American Civil Liberties Union had acquired copies of autopsy reports done on civilians who died while in custody in Afghanistan and Iraq. So they were under U.S. military custody and they died. So doctors will do an autopsy on them. And of, of these, there was 44 autopsies reports, and they're still on the ACLU website. You can, you can go there and you can read them. They're not pleasant reading. But it's quite clear. Of 23 of those, the cause of death was listed as homicide. 
So they were murdered while in custody. I mean, it was just right there, black and white, right, right in the autopsy reports. The other ones, um, the primary cause of death listed as heart failure. All of the bodies had had extensive damage, broken bones, um, bruises, lacerations, just they, they were brutalized badly, tortured to death. And ACLU came out and said these people were tortured to death. I mean, there was just no question about it. They put out a press release. Now, what was, what was different about this, this particular story, is here we had absolute proof that U.S., and this was multiple sites, it was many bases uh, throughout Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. It wasn't just Abu Ghraib. And so we have these autopsy reports proving that we were torturing people to death. And it goes out as a press release from ACLU. AP, the Associated Press, one of the largest uh, press you know, organizations, um, wire services in, in, in the world, sends that out to all 1,700 daily newspapers in the country all 5,000 radio and television news programs. And 12 newspapers in the country ran the story. That was it, 12. And most of them were actually in the Midwest. Uh, the largest paper was the LA Times, which ran a shortened version of it on page A4 um, once. And then neither AP or any other stories on torture have ever mentioned those autopsy reports again. The only other time I ever heard about it was in that movie, Taxi to the Dark Side. They, they mention it, they talk about it, which was on HBO recently, but um, that's the only other time I've ever seen any mention of this. So this isn't like we're trying to get the, you know, the guys in, in the Justice Department that wrote the torture memos and Cheney's saying, oh yeah, we did do some stuff, we tortured them, but, or we you know, took the gloves off, and, but did it save America from being hurt more and that kind of thing. No, this is killing people. This was murder. And the proof was there. And it still is not covered. It's still not talked about. And we know that every single editor in the country had access to that story. Love of mine, someday you will die. But I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light Or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide That they both are satisfied and Illuminate the nose On their vacancy signs If there's no one beside you When your soul embarks Then I'll follow you into the dark In Catholic school As vicious as Roman rule I got my knuckles bruised By a lady in black And I held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. <laughs> Welcome back, Mr. President. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. Good trip. Good advance work. <laughs> Give Dave Axelrod a Cuban cigar for finding secure Wi-Fi in Ghana. <laughs> As you requested, sir, the uh, Secretary of State flew in for this meeting. Good morning, uh, Madam Secretary. 
Mr. President, might be interested to know I, I got uh, Rom's call about this meeting at three in the morning. <laughs> and I'm sure you were prepared to take it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> and the, uh, the defense secretary is uh, with us via secure video link. <clears throat> yes, Mr. Secretary. Uh, Mr. President, uh, sorry about the video hookup, but the... Uh, the Boeing folks insisted on a, another day of golf before he left. No, that, that, that's fine. And um, the Attorney General? He um, he asked to recuse himself. Recuse himself? Mm -hmm. This isn't a court hearing. You, 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 you can't recuse yourself from a meeting with the President, can you? Sir, I'm not a lawyer. Huh? That was his word. Personally, it, it just sounded like he, like he really didn't want to be here. Wow. He's, he's in serious CYA mode, isn't he? From day one. Uh, we do have an opinion from the Justice Department on the matter. Unsigned. Okay. Nobody wants to be our John Yu, <laughs> apparently. So, indefinite detention. Where, uh, where do we stand? Well, I think it would go without saying if I didn't say it, but I feel constrained to say it anyway. All the all the goodwill that we've gained internationally from the pledge to close Guantanamo goes right down the Swiffer hole if we authorize indefinite detention of people who, who've been acquitted. Well, I have to tell you this, Madam Secretary. Prime Minister Putin took me aside at one point in our, you know, summit in Moscow and said he'd respect us a lot more if we went with indefinite detention. Not that I'm, you know, yearning for Putin's respect at this point. I'm, I'm just saying. Gates, what say you, defense? Well, obviously, Mr. President, it was our general counsel who, who testified this week that we could continue to hold acquitted persons. Mm -hmm. So I would be loath as a, as a non-lawyer to uh, bigfoot him in this context. Well, Mr. Secretary, I am a lawyer, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I, you know, I'm still baffled about the legality of how we we set up a trial system, uh, or use the one we've got, mm -hmm. try someone, try like hell to prove that they're guilty, and uh, if and when they're, they're found not guilty, we continue to hold them anyway. Why hold the trial? Well, all due respect, Mr. President, mm -hmm. uh, we might succeed in, in proving them guilty. So? Well... That would prove that the system works. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't we be better off in the eyes of the world to just say, sorry, these people just can't be tried. Secret evidence, they aren't citizens, they don't have Fifth Amendment rights and so forth, mm -hmm. and then just detain them indefinitely? I mean, at least that has the advantage of a certain kind of you know, logical coherence. You're right, it does. It just uh, sounds like the logical coherence of a dictatorship, doesn't it? Well, if you look at it that way, it might, yes. Mm. Mr. President, yeah. uh, I've read the unsigned opinion from justice. I've read the Defense Department counsel's testimony this week before the Senate. Oh, gold star for doing your homework. Thank you, sir. It appears to me that we're facing a conflict between our values and our goals. Mm -hmm. A conflict that uh, I said in the campaign did not have to exist. Yes, yes, you did, sir. And I'm not saying you, you were wrong to say so. Good. But that was then, and we're here. But, and this is a big but. Mm -hmm. 
I think a few of us in this building may have come up with a possible way out of this conundrum. Mm -hmm. Something that's uh, gone through National Security Council? Not yet, sir. Very preliminary. Lots of uh, unsanded edges on this thing. Mm -hmm. But here's the deal. We can't be sure that we can convict the people we need to convict. Right. We can't let them go free. Right. We can't continue to detain them indefinitely. So it would appear. So? So if and when they're acquitted, right. moments after they're released from custody, yes. we kill them. Uh, sorry, a little, a little trouble on this line. Uh, did, did you say we kill them? Uh, that's what I said, Mr. Secretary. We, we, we kill them. Ram, I haven't heard you talk this way since you suggested taking Monica Lewinsky's lawyer for a very long car ride. Haven't had to. Hold on, folks. You know, 20, 22nd time out here. Mm -hmm. we, we can't do that. Yes, we can. Well, it's wartime. That's what happens in wartime. You kill people. Kind of an essential part of the war brand. Mm. Otherwise, it's just, I don't know, just chess with bodies. Football. Yeah, Football. All right. Yeah. It, yes, it is wartime, mm -hmm. you know, because we've accepted the whole war scenario for this conflict. Yes, we have. Because we had to. Because whatever. Okay. But killing unarmed people, that's murder, isn't it? So you release them, you give them a weapon. You know, it's a dangerous world out there, yada, yada. You've electrified the exit door. Zap, zip, zoop, boom, done, finito. Unplug the electricity. And, oh, shoot. Ahmed had a heart attack. That's crappy timing. Mm -hmm. Starts to look uh, fairly suspicious after the third or fourth time, though, wouldn't it? Different methodology, dangerous world. Mm -hmm. These folks have a lot of enemies, you know, the usual. <laughs> Mr. President? Yes, Mr. Secretary. Uh, I, I think even though it's wartime, I don't think the, the uniformed military would want to, uh, to, to sign up for this particular assignment. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. CIA's on board. Yeah. You've You've talked to Panetta about this? No, not me personally, but they, they just need a few tweaks in the unsigned opinion from justice and a signature, and they're ready to rock and roll. <clears throat> Mr. President, I seriously doubt Leon Panetta wants to sign his agency up for a program of targeted assassinations at the doors of United States courthouses. All due respect, I'm not sure Mr. Panetta was a party to this discussion any more than I was. All right, uh, so just, just a review. The, the best we've got right now to solve this problem is to kill any one of these folks who happen to be lucky enough to get acquitted. Yes, sir. And who knows, even if they started to catch on, it might be an incentive for them to plead guilty. I, I have to go and wait for tea time. All right. Um, we'll, we'll do this again next week, and uh, maybe we'll have something better on the table. Maybe. This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestofleft.com. Right.
speeches, both from the same man, both from President Obama. One speech that could have been billed as a ballad to the Constitution, a proclamation of American values, a repudiation of the lawless behavior of the last presidential administration, and another speech announcing a radical new claim of presidential power that is not afforded by the Constitution and that has never been attempted in American history, even by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Remarkably, President Obama made both of those speeches simultaneously. Standing inside the National Archives in front of the actual original Constitution, President Obama delivered a blistering critique of the Bush administration in which he called their actions and their legacy literally a mess. Our government made a series of hasty decisions. Poorly planned, haphazard approach. Too often, we set those principles aside as luxuries that we could no longer afford. Our government made decisions based on fear rather than foresight. The decisions that were made over the last eight years established an ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism that was neither effective nor sustainable. An ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism that was neither effective nor sustainable. Ouch. Then, moments later, he announced his own, his own ad hoc legal approach for fighting terrorism. President Obama proposed something new, something called prolonged detention. Doesn't sound that bad, right? Prolonged detention? Did you ever see the movie Minority Report? It was based on a Philip K. Dick short story. It came out in 2002. It starred Tom Cruise, remember? He played a police officer in something called the Department of Pre-Crime. Pre-crime is where people are arrested and incarcerated to prevent crimes that they have not yet committed. Mr. Marks. By mandate of the District of Columbia Pre-Crime Division, I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubin. It was take place today, April 22nd, at 0800 hours, four minutes. No, I didn't do anything. You didn't do anything, but you're gonna. Future murder. Creepy, right? Putting somebody in jail, not for what they've done, but for what you're very sure they're going to do? There may be a number of people who cannot be prosecuted for past crimes. In some cases, because evidence may be tainted. But who nonetheless pose a threat to the security of the United States. We're not prosecuting them for past crimes, but we need to keep them in prison because of our expectation of their future crimes. Al-Qaeda terrorists and their affiliates are at war with the United States, and those that we capture, like other prisoners of war, must be prevented from attacking us again. Prevented. We will incarcerate people preventively. Preventive incarceration. Indefinite detention without trial. That's what, that's what this is. If you strip away the euphemisms. One civil liberties advocate told the New York Times today, quote, we've known this was on the horizon for many years, but we were able to hold it off with George Bush. The idea that we might find ourselves fighting with the Obama administration over these powers is really stunning. And it is stunning, particularly to hear President Obama claim the power to keep people in prison indefinitely with no charges against them, no conviction, no sentence, just imprisonment. It's particularly stunning to hear him make that claim in the middle of a speech that was all about the rule of law. 
but we must do so with an abiding confidence in the rule of law. Our government was defending positions that undermine the rule of law to ensure that they are in line with the rule of law. How can a president speak the kind of poetry that President Obama does about the rule of law and call for the power to indefinitely, preventively imprison people because they might commit crimes in the future? How can those two things coexist in the same man, even in the same speech? Well, that brings us to the self-consciously awkward, embarrassing part of this speech. After condemning the Bush administration for what he called their ad hoc legal strategy for trying to make things seem legal that patently weren't, this is what President Obama proposed. My administration has begun to reshape the standards that apply to ensure that they are in line with the rule of law. We must have clear, defensible, and lawful standards for those who fall into this category. We must have a thorough process of periodic review so that any prolonged detention is carefully evaluated and justified. Our goal is to construct a legitimate legal framework for the remaining Guantanamo detainees that cannot be transferred. Our goal is not to avoid a legitimate legal framework. In our constitutional system, prolonged detention should not be the decision of any one man. If and when we determine that the United States must hold individuals to keep them from carrying out an act of war, we will do so within a system that involves judicial and congressional oversight. And so going forward, my administration will work with Congress to develop an appropriate legal regime so that our efforts are consistent with our values and our Constitution. You'll construct a legal regime to make indefinite detention legal. You will, what did he say? Develop an appropriate legal regime so you can construct a whole new system outside the courts, even outside the military commissions, so that you can indefinitely imprison people without charges. And you'll build that system from scratch. What's that somebody said about ad hoc legal strategies? Just for context here, in the United Kingdom, where there isn't even a Bill of Rights, there's been a major debate about whether people can be held in preventive detention. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair wanted three months to be the outer limit for how long anyone could be held. There was a big political fight about it. Parliament ended up limiting that power to 28 days. 28 days is still the longest period of preventive detention that's allowed under law in any comparable democracy anywhere in the world. How long would President Obama's proposed preventive indefinite detention last? Well, he's not saying yet, but here's how he defines the threat that he says makes indefinite detention necessary. Right now in distant training camps and in crowded cities, there are people plotting to take American lives. That will be the case a year from now, five years from now, and in all probability, 10 years from now. 10 years from now. So you could get arrested today and locked up without a trial, without being convicted, without being sentenced for, say, 10 years until the threat of your future criminal behavior passes. Prolonged detention, he's calling it. This was a beautiful speech from President Obama with patriotic, moving, even poetic language about the rule of law and the Constitution, and one of the most radical proposals for defying the Constitution that we have ever heard made to the American people.
two ways to determine whether something is state policy. Sometimes if we're lucky enough, we can find a bunch of documents that came from the top down and said, authorize this stuff. Go ahead and do it, right? The problem with those documents often is that they're very limited. They use this hyper-legal language that turns out to have no correspondence to what actually happened on the ground. So, for example, um, in the Bybee memo, we read that there are 13 authorized techniques. Well, there are a lot more other techniques that are being used on the ground, right? Likewise, um, not surprisingly, in the Bradbury memo three years later, all of a sudden there are 17 techniques, right? This is one of the classic slippery slopes, because once you authorize torture, even if you do it in a trying and controlled way, three things happen. The number of victims that you're allowed to torture increases. The number of techniques that people use also increase. And the units that are authorized to torture become increasingly less responsive to central command. This classically happened with the Gestapo. If any of you have any interest in this at all, you will find online, thanks to Andrew Sullivan, the um, Gestapo interrogation memo um, from 1942. And it says, um, Gestapo Chief Mueller says, we only are going to arrest the following subgroups of people, and we're only going to use stress position, sleep deprivation, and exhaustion exercises. Right? Now, there's no relationship between this memo and what the Gestapo actually did in all these other places. The other way that we can assess whether something was systematic, and in human rights monitoring, this is the standard, it's this, is that when we have multiple accounts of people in different places who describe exactly the same range of techniques, then we can say that something was standard operating procedure, because this could not have happened in the absence of that. Thus, for example, we can say in the American case very early on that the high level of consistency between Afghanistan, Iraq, Guantanamo suggests that there was a standard operating procedure. Whereas, guess what? Gestapo techniques were not. Gestapo actually fragmented and they, because they used so many of the local um, guys, you know, the, 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 the German Gestapo used the French in, in France, and they used the Croatians in the Balkans, every culture brought their own set of torture techniques to the process. So what we find in the Gestapo case is that torture wasn't a systematic policy, and this isn't my determination. This is actually the determination at Nuremberg. Um, the only case of organized torture which was brought down at Nuremberg was against Carlton Brunner for organized torture in the camps. Because in the camps you saw consistently, regardless of place and time, exactly the same things. The problem with Gestapo is that we couldn't almost we can't find any of their documents, but that doesn't prevent us from saying that it's a policy. So if you want to know how something is a policy, that's the way. that the Best of the Left podcast has begun to run advertisements. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, the audience, for helping to support the show by supporting our advertisers. You've helped to make these advertising campaigns a success for not only the advertisers, but also this show. Now, I just wanted to throw out there that if you have a product, business, or service that you'd like to advertise on the Best of the Left, we are now and will be accepting new advertisers. And of course, listeners of the show who want to advertise will get a nice discount. 
If you're interested, simply write me an email to j at bestoftheleft.com. Video of young Iranian protester Nida Aga Sultan bleeding to death quickly became a symbol of Iranian government brutality. CNN's American Morning recently featured a discussion of whether the video would bring about major change, given that, as CNN reporter Carol Costello put it, the media is quite controlled in Iran. Costello compared the video to historical photographs that have become famous for exposing grave injustice. But she did not mention the photographs of prisoners being tortured by their U.S. military captors under the Bush administration, photographs that the Obama White House is currently seeking to suppress. Veteran White House correspondent Helen Thomas did, however. It was at a press conference when Obama was asked by a CNN journalist about his response to the Nita video. Obama called the video heartbreaking and spoke about the importance of freedom of expression. Thomas interrupted Obama's answer, asking him why he didn't then release the torture photos. Obama responded dismissively, but Thomas was drawing an apt comparison. Like the Iranian government's repression, U.S. government torture is made more feasible by the suppression of graphic evidence. And with the American public now shielded from images of torture, it's noteworthy that a recent poll found that roughly half of respondents approved of torturing terrorism suspects. happening in Iran it just breaks your heart uh, today we've had some stories out of Iran that are just devastating um, about 5,000 protesters at one point in the middle of the square and there's police and militia everywhere riot police and they start beating the protesters with batons there was a report I read that they uh, attacked them with axes that they threw them off of bridges and this 17 year old kid was not even part of a protest. They grabbed him off the street and they beat him senseless. And how are they going to deny this? I mean, here it is, right? This is what they did to a 17-year-old kid. And they said, oh, you want to protest? You want to protest? Here's what you do, right? And they tortured the poor kid. Uh, and why do they do this? Because they're trying to send a message. They're trying to send a message, don't go out in the street. If you go out in the street at all, this is what we're going to do to you. This is what we do to our people now, because now we have admitted that we are a dictatorship. And what dictatorships do is they don't give a damn about their people. They crush their people so that the few people on top could make more money and to, you know. And they'll please with the ayatollahs and the mullahs and the uh, Islamic clerics. There's nothing Muslim about them at all. You know how much money? I mean, Rafsanjani is one of the guys trying to take down Khamenei. So he's at this point considered one of the good guys, even though he has a very mixed record and how good he is is a very open question. 
and he's got, you know, an untold sum of money that his family got. How how'd he get how they get all that money? You know why? As I told you yesterday, you know why the Iranians are so mad. The government is so mad at Britain. It seems so damn random. Every story you read, you're like, man, are they pissed at the British for meddling? No, the British stopped uh, a frozen account that Khamenei's son has that might be valued at 1.6 billion dollars. That's a report out of the Guardian. Where did Khamenei's son get 1.6 billion dollars? Why does God need a spaceship? Okay, so. Of course they've been stealing from the Iranian people. And so when the Iranian people found out and they realized what a fraud their government is, they go out into the streets and if they do, they do this to them. You know, and, and you see the results and they beat them and they torture them. Now, if you think that's heartbreaking, wait till you get a load of a call directly from Iran that CNN got. We want to play you that clip now and, uh, and show you, uh, it's clip number 11, guys, show you uh, what's actually happening in Iran. Uh, just a few moments ago, Ivan Watson spoke with a young woman who witnessed the crackdown, the latest crackdown in Tehran, as she was part of a group that was protesting uh, the violence, the crackdown by the government, the death of Meda and others. Uh, here is a bit of that interview from a short time ago. All of a sudden, some 500 people with clubs and wood, they uh, came out of Hedayat Mosque and they poured into the streets and they uh, started beating everyone and they, uh, they tried to beat everyone on Saudi Bridge and uh, throwing them off of the bridge. This and, is a pedestrian uh, bridge. And yes, uh, pedestrian bridge, and everyone also on the sidewalks, they beat a woman so savagely that uh, she was drenched in blood, and her husband, who was watching the scene, he just fainted, and um, I also saw people shooting, uh, I mean, the, the security forces shooting on people, on Lalazar, and... Uh, of course, people were brave and booed the security forces, but they were beating people like hell. This was a mess. They were trying to beat people so that they would die. They were cursing, saying very bad words to everyone. They were beating old men, and this was a... This was exactly a massacre. You should stop this. You should stop this. You should help the people of Iran who demand freedom. Um, uh... You should help us. All right, Ivan Watson's conversation just a short time ago with um, a young woman, a student, described as a student in her 20s, talking about... Uh, well, describing a pretty brutal crackdown on the streets of Tehran today as people were gathering to protest the violence, the government crackdown. All right, and uh, apparently Khamenei not hearing any of those words, the Supreme Leader came out today and said, I had insisted and will insist on implementing the law on the election issue. Neither the establishment nor the nation will yield to pressure at any cost. Obviously, Khamenei has ordered this crackdown and he's the one responsible for the beatings. Of course, they are doing propaganda now and saying, oh, it's the Americans, it's the British, it's the Zionists. It, oh, you know what, uh, Netta, uh, the woman who was shot that we showed you a couple of days ago, yeah, you know, she was probably shot by uh, MEK, this terrorist group who's against our government. 
Uh, and then in the absurdity of all absurdities, these guys don't even know how to do effective propaganda. Their lies are so outrageous. They said the other person who might have shot Netta is, was a BBC reporter. Yeah, really? BBC reporters are going around shooting uh, Iranian women in the streets? No, as you heard right there from someone in Iran, they are ruthlessly taking out even women and beating them to a bloody pulp. And we show you the pictures of what they did to that poor 17-year-old kid. And it's happening all over Tehran. Uh, these people are absolutely brutal. And, you know, as I hear that woman crying out for us to help them, it's such a hard spot because I don't know how we're supposed to help them, but I, I'm dying to help them. If I was the president, I would every day, twice a day, I'd bring in the military and I'd say, give me an option on the 82nd Airborne. Just give me an option. How do we, how do we help these people? But, uh, of course, that would be an entire mess. I mean, what are you, how are you going to do? What is Musavi going to, you know, take command of our forces there? You land, the minute you land American forces there to help the protesters, it becomes a gigantic mess. You don't know who's on what side. We've been through that before. So it's absolutely heartbreaking, and you don't know what to do about it. You just hope uh, that they prevail somehow. And the people still going out in the streets in Iran have all the courage in the world. I, I can't respect people any more than I do those people. I mean, you want to talk about yearning for freedom? That's it right there. And, and I have to say this one more thing. You have to give the Persian people a lot of credit because they are strong, they are independent, and they, and they believe in freedom. They do. Now, this is basically two revolutions in 30 years, and before, we might not have liked the Islamic Revolution but it was to overthrow colonial power. In that case, it might have been uh, the U.S., and it might have been the West that was controlling the Shah. Uh, but they, didn't want, they wanted their freedom. They didn't want to be controlled by the West, and now they don't want to be controlled by these crooks posing as uh, mullahs and ayatollahs. So, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to him, and I, and I wish him the absolute best, and we'll see how this develops uh, going forward. few weeks as Iran descended into chaos, the Obama administration has adopted a cautious diplomatic approach, issuing a statement calling on the Iranian government to stop all violent and unjust actions and govern through consent, not coercion. Oh, and also this. The uh, incredible demonstrations that we've seen uh, is a testimony to, um, I think, the, what Dr. King called uh, uh, the arc of the moral universe. It's long, but it bends towards justice.
<laughs> That's what Mark Sanford said. <laughs> Long, but it Actually, that's what, uh, that's what Dr. King said, one of his many brilliant quotes. Of course, other leaders across the aisle are taking a slightly different tack. He's been timid and passive more than I would like. The President of the United States is supposed to lead the free world, not follow it. I believe that we could be more forceful than we have. I'd like for him to speak out very strongly on the side of values and human rights. Ah, so a bit more militant. So if Obama's Dr. King, the Republicans going a little more Malcolm X. <laughs> I can't believe this is the first time I'm noticing the similarities. In fact, Charles Krauthammer, Fox News contributor, can't believe Obama is cautiously calculating outcomes in the face of tyranny. In one answer on the question on Iran, he said, our national security interest is essentially paramount, meaning it trumps human outrage. You can't believe Obama puts our national security in front of moral outrage, huh? Displaying his uh, inconsistency. You know what I can't believe? That that bothers you, Charles Krauthammer, given your views on torture. If you have to weigh on the one hand the, the numberless and nameless lives saved against the, what, 30 seconds or so of terror in the eyes of a terrorist who's suffering this technique, I think the moral choice is easy. Ah, national interest is such a fickle little bitch. <laughs> in any case, by yesterday, the situation in Iran deteriorated further, and whatever reason, President Obama decided that it was time to ratchet up the rhetoric. The United States and the international community have been appalled and outraged by the threats, the beatings, and imprisonments of the last few days. I strongly condemn these unjust actions. So we're cool now, right? Were you influenced at all by John McCain and Lindsey Graham accusing you of being timid and weak? Before um, I ask my question, I'm wondering if you could actually answer David's. In your opening remarks, sir, you were said about Iran that you were appalled and outraged. What took you so long? Oh, no you did If Obama is Martin Luther King and the Republicans are Malcolm X, then the press is Jack K. Oh, yeah! Mr. President, I have four follow-ups. Yes, at this conference, it was all press. I want to start by you know addressing... You know what? Be as prickly as you want, because this is Obama. Senor Cool. Mr. Three Points from the Behind the Arc Swish. He's not going to take the bait. Why won't you spell out the consequences that the Iranians... Because I think, Chuck, that we don't know yet how this thing is going to play out. I know everybody here is on a 24-hour news cycle. I'm not. Well, why would a drive private insurance out of business? If, 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 if you just think it's neat to ask me about my smoking, as opposed to it, it being relevant to my new law. Since you just threw back at us uh, our last prognosis, let's not uh, let's not engage in another one. But only I'm the president of the United States. So, if you'll excuse me, I believe I have an appointment to go f mother. Thanks for listening, everybody. I have some exciting ideas going on today. But uh, first, of course, I have to thank a couple of members. First, uh, I want to thank Thomas M., member number 17, as well as Thomas M., member number 24. 
Thomas M. joined up on uh, June 28th, whereas Thomas M. joined on July 16th. So thanks to both of you guys. Your support obviously helps to keep us going, and I hope you're enjoying the Best of Left Raw feed, including all the video clips and all that sort of great stuff that I find and send your way as I find it. Of course, that's the benefit is you get more of the great news as it happens, or at least as I find it. Also, again, I just want to remind everyone about August 20th, of course, the great iTunes experiment, wherein we're going to get as many people as we possibly can. I've set a goal of 100, just in my head, just to and, and to let you know, just basic idea of if we can get 100 reviews in a day, then I will be satisfied and excited about that. And And I think we have a decent chance of getting their attention over there at iTunes. So anyways, just mark your calendar, August 20th. We'll all go in at once, write reviews for the show, and see what happens. Now, on to the exciting news. This can basically be summed up uh, by something I said the other day, not on the show, um, but just talking to a friend. And I said that I'm too busy producing the show to have time to make the show better. I can keep going as it is, but it's really hard to implement new stuff, new ideas. So what I would like to do is hire an intern. Very specifically, the idea I have to make the show better is to do something that I've wanted to do for a while and just, as I said, have never had time to get around to doing. What I would like to do is implement a campaign portion of the show, a take action portion, a now that you've heard the news and you're, you know, excited or pissed off or riled up in some way about it, here's what you can do. And frankly, I mean, this is long overdue. I've been hearing responses from listeners for a long time saying, you know, I get my news from the show and then I'm all excited about it and I just want to go out and hold a rally or something like that. And that's great. But in a perfect world, you shouldn't have to go somewhere else to get an idea of what to do. So as part of the show, what I would like to start to do is give actionable items, as they're called in uh, organizing terms, simple things, you know, what representative to call, uh, you know, the congressional switchboard, sign this email petition, you know, whatever, and, and hopefully a lot more exciting things than that. You know, we all know that internet petitions aren't exactly the most enthralling thing in the world. So what I would love to do is bring on a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, fresh-out-of-college, ready-to-hit-the-street-and-kick-some-ass person who will take the time, you know, obviously fan of the show, interested in making the show better, and will take the time and help me develop this take-action portion of the show. Obviously, details beyond that can be discussed in person or, you know, over the phone or whatever, rather than here, but that's the basic idea. If you're interested or know someone who would be, come one, come all, and uh, and we'll get this sorted out. Hopefully you're familiar with the concept of internships. There is, of course, no money involved, as there is no money to be had, but I can promise uh, 
nice letter of recommendation at the end of it. So that's it. I'm excited about this idea and think it has great potential. We'll all find out in the very near future whether it works out or not. So that's it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by signing up for our newsletter. Uh, Speaking of the newsletter, actually just before I sat down to record this, I added another little checkbox to our newsletters where you can sign up to receive action alerts. So it's the first step in the process here um, as we develop some sort of a campaign action-oriented grassroots mechanism that'll be one way we do it so if you're interested in plugging into that go to the website click the link for the newsletter and then you'll see there all of your options for what specific emails you'd like to receive one of them now is for action items you can support the show of course by leaving reviews on itunes on august 20th and not before Uh, voting every month at podcast alley of course it's the beginning of a new month and we're currently in the top 10, but of course we need lots more votes this month to keep us there, so I appreciate anyone who goes and votes. And as long as you're coming by the website, might as well take an extra couple of minutes and fill out our listener survey, which helps me learn all about you and uh, and get some honest, anonymous feedback about the show. Links for all that stuff is on the website. If you'd like, you can listen to the show on your smartphone without having to sync it with your computer by visiting Stitcher.com. You can stream it right over the web and over the air to your phone. Visit the show notes to find links to all of our sources and music used in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend thanks to our members from bestoftheleft.com. Thought lines now black and white.